Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan with another episode of the Influence Continuum. And for my regular listeners, you know that so much of my content is about the dark side of the Influence Continuum and how people are being hurt by other people. But I also uh, relish the opportunity to share an expert on sleep, uh, Dr. Lauren Brock, in this episode, because frankly, we all are sleep deprived, and it appears to me. So uh, Dr. Lauren Brock, I will disclose, is my sister-in-law. I've known her for 25 years. She is an expert of experts, and that's why I asked her to join us. Dr. Lauren Brock, you are a clinical psychologist, nutritionist. You have deep interests in sleep and sleep disorders. You are board certified in sleep disorders medicine and behavioral sleep medicine. You have a private practice in health psychology at uh, Greenwich Hospital in Connecticut, as well as Northwell Health Sleep Disorders Center in New Hyde Park, New York. Uh, You also have a master's in nutrition. You have a holistic approach, and you especially enjoy working with women to optimize their physical and emotional health. You're a published author, expert, and Dr. Lauren, it you know, you know my story. I was sleeping three to four hours a night, seven days a week in the Moonies, and uh, it really, I really couldn't think for myself, and... Uh, And a lot of people think, you know, six hours is fine or five hours is fine, but I think we all know that we need more sleep and we need to wake up rested. So let me just uh, ask you to define sleep, the common sleep disorders maybe that you see in your practice, what the symptoms are, and uh, we'll take it from there. Thank you for joining us. Great. It's such a pleasure to be here. Um, Well, let's see. The common sleep disorders that I see um, would be, first of all, insomnia. (laughs) And I guess um, that everybody can relate to that. Um, At least 50% of the population experiences at least a poor night or several poor nights of sleep. Um, on some regular basis, right. and about anywhere between 10 to 15% have chronic sleep uh, problems, meaning insomnia, problems falling asleep, staying asleep, not feeling rested. And um, I would say um, that is the bulk of my practice, is mm-hmm. treating people with insomnia for all different reasons. And we can get into what we look at, what are the kinds of questions. What am I interested in? How do I understand it? Um, But another sleep disorder that is quite common is also sleep apnea Mm. and very different. Um, Although, you know, again, it's a problem with sleep. And so um, with when people have sleep apnea, they're having problems breathing during sleep Mm. because the physiology changes Mm -hmm. during sleep. And so an apnea is defined as a partial or complete closure of the back of the throat, Hmm. which obviously anyone can imagine is not a good thing. Um, And it has to happen for at least 10 seconds or longer to be considered an apnea. Mm -hmm. But this doesn't happen just one time a night because all of us have some apneas per night. Hmm. It's when it happens over and over and over again. And that's becomes a problem. I didn't realize that 
we have we all can have a moment where we stop breathing. That's really fascinating to me. I just want to be on the record. I've never had problem falling asleep, but my issue is waking up after three or four hours and my mind is racing about work or, you know, some, you know, stressor or something. And I've had to really do sleep hygiene, uh, which I'm going to ask you next to go into, uh, you know, for, for the average person. Before I ask you to respond, is it true that we need seven to nine hours on average of sleep? I know there's some differences with, with people, but is it true that right. restorative sleep, we really need it for our immune system and that a lot of Americans are sleep deprived? Yes. So, um, you know, that that has been looked at over and over and over again, and it really does appear that probably most of us need about seven to eight hours. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that would probably be the average, I would say, or the range of the average. Yes. Um, but then, as you know, as everything is distributed, some people can actually do fine with six hours. Uh, I don't know about five, but perhaps six. That would, and, and some others, nine or 10. Mm -hmm. So, but those people are rare. Mm -hmm. Most of us need seven to eight hours, but you know, the data is overwhelming in showing that, you know, many people are not getting that. Right. And, uh, and, and, and issues like, um, you know, they don't go to bed the same time or, in, you know, it's too hot in the room. Like talk about some of the, the things that can help us get some good habits uh, so sure. we can have proper sleep. Absolutely. So, um, of course, you know, um, there are many principles that will optimize sleep, and a lot of them fall under the category of sleep hygiene. And probably some of the more important ones are to keep a regular sleep and wake schedule. Mm -hmm. um, and to, so for instance, if it's 10 to 6 or 7, uh, 11, you know, 11 somewhere in that ballpark. Um, some people are guilty of spending too much time in bed and other people too little. Mm. But keeping regular schedules or varying their schedules. Mm -hmm. And we there's something known as social jet lag, which is what many people are guilty of, where the during the week, they are curtailing their sleep. They're not getting enough sleep. Mm. They're maybe going to sleep at 11 or midnight or one. And having to get up for work so they are not getting enough sleep on a regular basis. And then on the weekend, sleeping in. And we call that social jet lag because they're actually altering their rhythm of mm. sleep during the weekends versus the week. And it's almost as if they're flying to California <laughs> mm. um, and, you know, and then coming back to New York on a Sunday night to a Monday morning. So is so. it true that there is no such thing as sleep? debt because people say well i'll make it up on the weekend it's really better to get up at the same time and try to go to sleep at the same time right absolutely um you know within you know a reasonable um boundary i would say i mean look if you're sleeping a little more half hour hour more on a weekend sure that's okay but it's really when people really extend their sleep on weekends and are really you know not getting enough sleep on 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 weeknights that's mm -hmm. not good because mm -hmm. then they really are changing the rhythm of their sleep mm -hmm. yeah mhm mm mhm 
And is it true that it's good not to do vigorous exercise before you go to sleep and it's a good thing to turn off your phone an hour or two before you go to sleep and like not even have your phone in your bedroom? Yes. Um, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, I, you know, it, it's, it's, it's nearly impossible to tell a teenager not to do these things, mm. um, unfortunately. And in a technological society, it's very hard to um, get everything out of the picture, but we do what we can. And certainly, um, so, you know, going along with sleep hygiene, it's keeping regular sleep and wake hours. It's making the room dark. So any lights, you know, having Alexa going off in the middle of the night or any other lights, not good because light, especially the blue light is what we understand. The blue wavelength in light um, inhibits melatonin release. So we don't like that. We mm. don't need that at night. That's mm. not going to help us sleep well. Um, and keeping it dark, quiet, not drinking much caffeine. And if you do, really cutting it off by noon or two or three, depending on whether mm. you have sleep issues or not. Um, certainly not drinking that much. Alcohol, um, also not very good for sleep. Um, it may sedate you initially, but then it can wake you up. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And then the devices, the devices are a real challenge. The Netflix, the pandemic, all were, you know, challenges to our sleep. Yeah. I don't have a TV in my bedroom, but I know a lot of people do. And what sayeth thou, sleep expert? <laughs> well, um, I, you know, I do say I'm not as strict with people who are sleeping well. So I say if it's not a problem, it's not a problem. But of course, no one should be falling asleep to the TV at night. Um, that's not good. Mm -hmm. And and I have many patients who come in and tell me, well, I need, you know, they may be lonely, they may be widowed, they're older, they fall asleep to the TV, but guess what? It wakes them up at some point and mm -hmm. they have to turn it off. Mm -hmm. And usually at a point where they're more vulnerable if they wake up to then have trouble falling back to sleep. Got it. So, right. So, you know, your um, your problem with sleep maintenance is probably the more common one mm -hmm. um, and certainly the one I see mostly. Um, not to say I don't see falling problems with falling asleep, but staying asleep is really more of an issue and common because we also, our sleep is packaged in 90-minute cycles. Oh, So us. we go through. Yeah. Yeah. Please explain. Um, so um, sleep is quite predictable and it unfolds over the night um, in this cyclic pattern of first having non-REM sleep, then REM, then non-REM and REM. So we cycle back and forth mm -hmm. and each cycle of sleep, we, um, which is about 90 minutes long, it can vary for a person, but within a person, between people, but not within, usually you have each of us have a genetic predisposition to whatever our cycle of sleep is going to be. Um, and so as we go through the night and, in, in, you know, through cycles, we have more REM, less non-REM um, through cycles. So we do dream more in the morning. We are having more REM sleep in the morning. And that uh, REM stands cycles. for rapid eye movement. Is that yes. am I remembering yes. correctly? And that's the restorative deeper um, sleep. Is that 
Is that, is that close? Well, guess what? It's all deep. It's all needed. It's uh-huh. all needed. Um, and um, we used to think that REM was really where all of our learning and memory storage was occurring. But it turns out it's also occurring during non-REM. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lighter stages of non-REM. That, um, but stage two, which is uh, stage two non-REM sleep, we also are sort of having dreamlike um, mentation, but we're not having the same type of dreams that are vivid, uh, more intense, um, and and more complicated, really, that we have in REM sleep. Mm-hmm. But it all all sleep serves a function, and we need all of it. Mm-hmm. So it's all restorative, really. So I want to just say in my practice, when people ask me for help, I'll often ask at the beginning, like, how are you sleeping? You know, are you exercising? Are you eating, you know, nutritionally, et cetera? But I'm astounded how many people have sleep disorders. And people. some people say, I haven't slept well for two weeks. And some people say, I haven't slept well for years. Mm-hmm. And especially those people who are like having major disturbances where they're hallucinating, they're having delusions, they think the guru is visiting them at night or they're having you know repetitive nightmarish dreams about the cult. Um, yeah. It's a major piece that we want to get them to figure out how to go to sleep and go deep into sleep and wake up refreshed. Um, so, um, for anyone listening, uh, if you're a former member, especially like really pay attention to this, please, because it's so vital to your, your mental well-being and your functionality. Um, I do have another question. I use melatonin at night and I heard there was a recent meta study that was questioning how useful melatonin is. I'm kind of, honestly, it's a habit now that I just like to pop a 2.5. Uh, you know, I put my night guard in because I used to grind. I don't grind anymore, but I do that. Uh, what, what, what's the latest you hear about melatonin research? Right. So, yeah. So um, melatonin is a hormone and we call it the hormone of darkness because we secrete it at night or we secrete it when it's dark. Mm -hmm. And so, as I indicated before, um, if there's light in the rooms, the nightlights that people used to have are actually not so good for melatonin release and Mm. so not so good for sleep. Mm -hmm. And what we understand about melatonin, um, either the endogenous, what we produce um, naturally, and then the exogenous, what we take in, um, is that it helps signal sleep. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a signaler of sleep it, and, and helps sort of uh, support the circadian rhythm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not a wonderful sedative. Mm-hmm. But having said that, it has some sedative effects and it can help with sleep onset. But it's really more for helping the circadian rhythm, and I say priming the pump Mm -hmm. of the circadian rhythm. Mm -hmm. So I am actually for melatonin. And I use it. Yes, keep (laughs) doing it. Uh. Um, And look, you know, with everything, there are probably things we don't know um, about the downside. And, you know, some of the things that we do understand is there's variability in, um, in how much melatonin is actually in some products. And, you know, that came out a few years of meta-analysis. 
as well as sort of the quality of it. But if you have a trusted brand mm. and you've been using it for a while, I say that's fine. Mm-hmm. I say try to keep it below five or five and less. Yeah. Because most of us do not need more. And in fact, there's indications that maybe even less, but, um, you know, like 0.1. But I, in my practice, I probably use, um, recommend two to three milligrams. So you're right there yeah. in that pocket. Yay. I found that when <laughs> I was taking five, I would be like kind of groggy in the morning. So I stopped that. And I I, I do the sublingual one um, that I pop in. Uh, it, I don't know how it is for my teeth because I put it in after I brush my teeth at night. So maybe that's not great. Anyway, back to sleep. So... Um, say a little bit more about circadian rhythms, maybe mention about people who have the, these jobs where they have to work at night and shift work and the problems with that, please. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, if, if I have to say one of the most exciting, um, I think areas in sleep and in medicine and in health is probably circadian rhythms. Mm. Um, And I think it's going to be um, something that we understand impacts our health in ways we really just didn't understand before. Mm. So what is a circadian rhythm? Circa means about, and dian, the D-I-A-N, means a day. So a circadian rhythm is about a day. Mm -hmm. We have other rhythms. We have an ultradian rhythm. There are other kinds of rhythms, but Lots of things run on a circadian rhythm. Mm-hmm. And so it's about a day. And why do I say about a day? Because it turns out it's not exactly a day. It's 24.2 hours on average, mm. which is a little more than a day, or at least where the, the light and di- dark cycle is now. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting, I, I, I um, read somewhere, I think, you know, we, we are slowing down um, the light and dark outside. So now it's 24 hours, Mm. but I think it slows down. I can't remember by how many seconds a century. Mm. So that just happens to be what it is now, Mm. 24 hours. Interesting. Right. But our internal rhythm is on average about 24.2. So every day we have to reset our internal clock to match the outside world. And we do that with light. Light is one of the main zeitgebers or time givers that resets our internal clock and says, hey, you got to go back to 24 hours. Mm -hmm. So a lot of things run on a circadian rhythm. And we really need the light outside every morning to see it about the same time to reset our internal clock to the outside world. Mm -hmm. And so hormones run on a 24-hour cycle. Sleep-wake runs on a 24-hour cycle. Our temperature rhythm, Mm -hmm. which goes up a little, goes down a little runs on a 24-hour. There's so many things. So I think in the future, we're going to understand that so much better and use it to deliver medications at different times uh-huh. that'll be optimized when you know when they're more effective. Surgeries, it turns out, it's better to have certain surgeries at certain times of day because of our physiology. So, you know, there's there's a lot of implications of circadian rhythm eating. You know, we certainly know with fasting and, you know, and how to sort of uh, that 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 also is a circadian rhythm so um so i so living in rhythm to in rhythm with our circadian rhythm is important and that's why keeping regular sleep and wake hours keeping it dark when it's supposed to be dark 
not having stimulating things, devices, um, are certainly can be a problem. Um, and, you know, being active during the day, being physically active, mm -hmm. being emotionally connected, mm. but in the evening, winding down. Mm. So sort of an answer to sort of what you describe, you sleep for several hours and you're sleeping a few cycles of sleep. And usually we're vulnerable after two or three cycles of sleep, which are again, 90 minutes, an hour and a half each, mm -hmm. maybe to wake up. And now we've gotten sort of the very critical beginning of sleep. And now our mind can take over mm. because we do wake up after cycles of sleep. It's just going right back down into sleep. And so I think be, I, I'm more understanding that what we do during the day and how we sort of unburden ourselves of the things we're involved in in the day in the evening is so important. Um, so I would say, you know, spending time thinking about things, I sometimes say a worry list of what are the things that are on your mind today? Think about them, do a dump, a data dump of that. And then if they come up in the at nighttime, you say, no, I thought about that. I don't need to think about that now. Yes, that's a great um, strategy. Writing down before you go to sleep, whatever issues are on your 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 mind uh, that definitely helps me a lot absolutely and you know when being disciplined and saying i don't need to think about that now i can really i i thought about that and i'll think about that tomorrow mm -hmm. um and so you know certainly that and when i talk about um restricted hours in bed what i mean is well so what i tell people to do is to do a sleep log for two weeks. Mm. Uh, because when people tell you, well, this is how I sleep, it turns out it's plus or minus that. One night they sleep four hours, another night they sleep six or seven hours. You know, mm. they may make up. Um, so it's not the same. And so if you do it for two weeks, you get a better sense of what's the average. Right. And so first, when you look at that, you can say, well, okay, I see I vary what time I get into bed or I vary what time I get out of bed. So that's information. And I also, sometimes it's three hours and wow, that I get that makeup night where I get seven hours. Mm. Neither of those are what you want. Mm. You want to have some average of, of, of those two. Mm -hmm. And so let's say it's six or six and a half hours, which, you know, or five or, or, or so spend only six and a half or seven hours in bed. At first, so let's say, for instance, you'd make it be uh, 11 to 630. Mm -hmm. You do that for two weeks to a month. It's called sleep compression mm -hmm. or sleep restriction. Mm -hmm. It's hard to do. And at first you will sleep less. But over time, you will start sleeping more in that rhythm. Mm. So you don't want the highs or lows of sleep. You want to sleep about the same every night. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what we're talking about when we talk about sort of compressing it or spending less time in bed. Yep. Um, and yeah. And because there's a lot of people who will, you know, hang out in bed for 12 hours and they never get that restorative place. And, uh, and they're, you know, going in and out of light states of trance or whatever. 
uh, but that's not what the body really is craving and needing to restore itself. Exactly. I say, you know, and so another part of it also is, and we call this stimulus control, which is we they start associating other things with bed mm-hmm. and with nighttime. And so some of the things can be um, right in this kind of sort of betwixt and between state. They're mm-hmm. not asleep. They're not awake. Somewhere in between, they're kind of a little hallucinating. It's, mm-hmm. you know, because they're sort of in a sleepy state um, or they're worrying. Mm. Ruminating then, is terrible. Exactly. It's not a good thing to do when you're trying to sleep at all. It's not good. Yeah. Um, I, I have some clients that are worried about a loved one in a cult, and I literally have to assign them worry time throughout the day, five-minute blocks where they're not allowed to have any positive thoughts. They only can <laughs> you know, catastrophize and worry about what's going wrong. But that gives it compartmentalizes the worry and it releases that. And I say, you know, think about is there any new information that you can do something different? Great. If there isn't, if you're just doing the same old, same old, that's not helping you to be functional. Absolutely. That's gonna right? harm your your relationship. Talk to me about if you have a partner with a restless leg. I'm interested in <laughs> in, uh, you know, uh, exploring some things. I also want to ask you about Fitbits and other types of rings and devices that are being promoted to consumers. Sure. Um, So restless legs is is another, um, is absolutely another sleep disorder I'll see. Um, And it becomes more prevalent as we get older. We think it has to do, at least in part, with iron transfer into the brain. And so, um, but what it is, is it is a feeling that your legs are uncomfortable. Mm. Um, Could be creepy crawly, could just be from the inside out, just feeling uncomfortable um, sensations. Um, But if you have it, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, And it doesn't happen at any given time during the day. It happens, number one, when you're sedentary. Mm. And number two, it has a circadian rhythm. So there's that word again, phrase. Um, It happens in the evening and at nighttime. Mm -hmm. So as you can imagine, that's not great for sleep. And so it affects usually falling asleep. It can affect the evening. People will say they're watching TV and they, you know, they can't stop moving their legs. Mm -hmm. So the other part of it is that movement helps. Mm. It helps the sensation. But that again is counter to sleep. You can't be moving. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you are, you're, you know, not getting great sleep. You're, um, you know, fragmenting your sleep and you're also probably affecting your bed partner as well. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's restless legs. And it, like I said, it increases probably at least 25% of people over 65 mm-hmm. have restless legs to some extent. And is there a treatment for that per se? Right. Uh, it, you know, there's different reasons. One, like I said, could be iron, um, iron. And so the first thing is to get blood work done, to have um, your, your, your doctor look at your ferritin levels, which is your storage of iron. Mm. And you can take oral iron. You can take iron supplements with vitamin C to help the absorption. Mm. Um, That could be one. Um, If it's mild, sometimes um, activity like earlier in the day, exercising can help it. 
But when it's more severe, we, you know, we unfortunately have to turn to prescription medications like um, gabapentin, Lyrica. Those are ones mm-hmm. um, who that can help, um, you know, calcium channel. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Receptors. And talk a little bit more. You just mentioned blood tests. Uh, talk about sleep tests and when those are indicated, like if someone's listening when they want to do a consult with someone like yourself who is a sleep expert. Sure. Well, um, these days, um, it has become much easier to have a sleep test. Mm. And in a way, it's not really a sleep test. They call it a home sleep apnea test. Mm. Um, And what that is, is a test. uh, It's a little box with sensors that you bring home. And it's really just for breathing. So it's just to look for sleep apnea, which again is is very common, very prevalent, um, up to 15 to 20% of men Mm. and about 5% of women, especially menopausal, can have sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. And that has implications cardiovascular, metabolically. Um, Yeah. So, you know, you certainly want to have a home sleep apnea test. And all you need to do is tell your doctor, I snore. Mm. Um, or my bed partner notices I gasp, or I am very sleepy during the day. Mm. Those would be the symptoms. Mm-hmm. And it's covered by Medicare. Um, and so it is a very important test just to have. That is just a breathing test, really, for sleep. So do they send it to you and you send it back after you do it for a night or two? Or how does that work? Yes, it can be that way, or it can be you pick it up at you know a sleep disorder center um, and then drop it off the next day. The following day, they download the data and they, you know, then you get the results. I see. This is new information for me because my recollection was people used to have to go into a place and be wired up and stay all night, which always struck me as weird. How do you sleep normally when you're not in your own bed and you got wires? Right. But talk, talk to me <laughs> about you know, what's happening and how to right. diagnose. So. Right. So that test, though, is not a sleep test. I mean, it is a sleep apnea test. There is still, of course, the tried and true in-lab study that we still do. And we do for many reasons. Um, We will do it if, if, you know, we will do it for sleep apnea even so. We'll do it for the CPAP, CPAP, which is the treatment, one of the main treatments for sleep apnea. Um, We'll do it for that as well in the lab. We'll do it for some intractable cases of insomnia to see what's going on um, and uncover what's going on. Sometimes there's other behaviors occurring during sleep, Mm. what we call parasomnias. So now we're in another uh, grouping of sleep disorders, which mean other things happening during sleep, Mm. like sleepwalking, sleep talking. That's not really a problem, though. Um, Or REM sleep behavior disorder. That's a problem. REM sleep behavior disorder is happening during this REM sleep. Mm. And we're not, the person is not paralyzed. So they are moving around during REM and usually acting out their dream. They can hurt a bed partner. They can hurt themselves. Um, Yeah, there have been some really scary and, you know, um, I think you told uh, me once about an expert witness case you were consulted around where somebody was sleepwalking and committed, you know, violence. Right. Yeah. Um, You know, there was the question of that. Usually with non-REM sleep, which happened, um, sleepwalking happens during non-REM, not during REM Mm -hmm. because we're paralyzed. Um, but, um, yeah, there, there have been cases where people have actually gotten off murder, um, you know, uh, 
Yeah. Because they weren't they conscious, they you know, yeah. they, they were really in, a, uh, you know, another another dimension or whatever. Um, I want to circle back to, to the apparatuses that I see advertised, the rings and the Fitbits and other things. Talk to me about your perspective on, on all of these right. consumer good things. Uh-huh. Well, it's, it's like any technology. There are the, you know, there are the positives and benefits, and there's also the negatives and cons um, of it. And um, a lot of them are sort of proposing that they do more than they really do. So while I think that they can help people, they are not great at actually um, recording sleep stages, forget about. They, you know, they may come up with this amount deep sleep, this amount light sleep, this amount REM. And even if you're in a lab with the electrodes where we're actually really recording EEG and, you know, um, all the aspects of that we measure sleep, we don't even know sometimes what stage you're in. Mm. Um, it, it's that it's it's sort of that kind of complicated. But so I wouldn't use one of these um, the the watches or the aura rings or um, those to um, measure how much deep sleep you're getting every night. Mm-hmm. I could use them to see how much sleep you're getting and whether you're keeping a regular schedule of sleep. Mm-hmm. I think they're good for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there are other indicators of heart rate. Um, it probably also does a very good job at. But sleep in particular, I think we're not quite there yet at really um, them being reliable measures of mm-hmm. sleep. Mm-hmm. And And I also say to people, why do you need to know that? Mm-hmm. Because you don't really know what to do with that information mm-hmm. that's interesting yeah so i guess i'm more wondering about uh just the consumerism piece and and also just is it true that when you're in deep sleep your heart rate slows down or not necessarily um well, so, you know, again, there's the, the question of what's deep sleep. Um, there is slow wave sleep, which is non-REM sleep. And yes, your heart rate does slow down during then, mm-hmm. during th- that, the, that stage. Um, but um, there's REM sleep where your heart rate is just more variable. Mm-hmm. Um, so it speeds up, it slows down. It, you know, is more sympathetic activity going on during REM sleep. Mm-hmm. So, um, so certainly heart rate has been used to stage different um, stages of sleep. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it does an okay job, but not a great job. And so I think it's one of those things that's dangerous when people start relying too much on their technology yeah. um, for sleep. Yeah, I'm seeing on TV an advertisement for like, you don't need your CPAP anymore. By, I don't even know what the product is, but it just seems really like questionable to me if somebody's. I'm, I'm glad you picked that up because that's actually a newer technology. It's called Inspire. Mm-hmm. And um, one of uh, the two places that I, um, that I work uh, at Northwell, we were a beta tester for Inspire. What it is, is it is a surgery that you have to undergo oh. where they implant uh, electrodes in the hypoglossal uh, nerve to stimulate the tongue to basically push the tongue forward during sleep for sleep apnea. Wow. 
Yes. I didn't understand <laughs> but, it was surgical. It looked like it was, you know, a pill or something. I didn't, it wasn't clear what the heck it was. I, and they do that on purpose. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> it's, you know, they make it unclear on purpose to say it's just this miracle and you can throw away your CPAP machine. CPAP is still the gold standard for treating sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. Now, Inspire can work for some people, mm -hmm. but you have to be evaluated, go to an ENT doctor, and understand where the collapse is mm -hmm. um, occurring um, during the night for you to see if you're a candidate for Inspire. And is it true that if people have ob obesity, they're gonna maybe have a higher prevalence of sleep apnea? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Obesity is one of the risk factors because um, anything that will pull on the back of the throat to close it is going to be a risk factor. Mm -hmm. And probably also there are metabolic reasons why it's also a risk factor too. Mm -hmm. yeah. But interestingly, also having um, sleep apnea or a sleep problem, even insomnia, is a risk factor for obesity. Mm. That's so interesting. Yeah. Where we are like biopsychosocial beings and we really are embodied minds and you know we're still learning so much and hopefully we'll know more. But in the meantime, a lot of people just are working too hard and not sleeping well and worrying too much and haven't developed a really good toolbox of strategies for how to how to do well. Like, for example, I realized a few years ago that if I have a heavy meal at seven and I'm going to bed at 10, I'm not going to sleep as well as if I eat at six or at five. I just don't, my, it takes longer, I guess, for my metabolism to absorb the food. So, you know, it creates problems when people want to go out for eight o'clock meal, but I know I'm going to eat earlier. I'll snack at eight and keep people company. Mm -hmm. But it's uh, an adjustment. But I know I'm, I'm true to my body. I want my body to be happy with me and not fight with me. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I, I often tell people that imagine that you were living in cave people time. <laughs> yeah. And the kinds of things that, that we had to do then. Mm -hmm. And our bodies are still built that way. So... Yeah, we didn't have the luxury of going downstairs and, you know, going to the refrigerator, having a snack or eating later. Mm -hmm. We had to eat earlier. Right. Um, and we had to go in our cave and it had to be dark. Maybe there was a little fire going for a little while, but it was essentially dark. And then we had to get out at the break of dawn to, you know, survive, to right. do everything we had to do to get food and keep our you know family going right so really that's the way we're built and we violate it in a lot of ways and sometimes we get away with some of them but you know yeah incandescent lights have changed the psychology and the and everything with the human species talk about um uh eastern daylight time and what's your take is that should we get rid of it or what <laughs> Right. So um, I, I, I actually recently did a bit for Eyewitness News on this um, because I guess, well, it is a controversial topic. And um, and we just obviously sprung, 
we sprung forward. forward. We we lost an hour. Yeah. Um, but we did that for daylight savings. So what does that mean? Mm. So obviously we all understand that in the spring and summer that um, the day starts stretching out. And um, I think it was actually during the wartime um, with FDR uh, that they actually went to daylight savings mm. uh, to save money. Uh, they thought it helped with um, more daylight hours um, for heating and for energy, um, that it was better to sort of make it later. Um, but it turns out that's not so great. <laughs> well, the worst part of of going back is going back and forth mm -hmm. between daylight savings and standard. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of things can happen during those transitions, like the Monday and Tuesday after. We call the Monday that just happened when we sprung forward, Sleepy Monday, because people typically lose an hour of sleep mm -hmm. um, on, you know, on that Sunday night, uh, because their bodies are not ready to go to bed mm -hmm. an hour earlier. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, so anyway, but standard time seems to be more in sync with what our bodies are actually sort of programmed, our circadian rhythms are programmed to do. Mm -hmm. And so if so, you know, even though there is like a move now, I think, in in the is it in the Congress or set, Senate, yeah. I think, actually Senate, to keep us one thing all, you know, the whole year, but they want to go to daylight savings, it'd be better if we could go to standard time because the morning is going to be a problem for kids uh, getting to school. There's accidents. There was the whole thing that happened when they did try to do it and kids uh, were hit by cars while waiting for buses. Mm. You know, so and anyway, that, that I think young people do better to go to school later anyway in terms of their you know, they need more sleep, right? They need more sleep and um, especially teenagers uh, and, you know, uh, yeah, teenagers, their rhythm. So this is another thing about circadian rhythms. Our rhythm changes throughout our lifetime, too. So when we're younger, our rhythm is advanced. So we get sleepier earlier and we get up earlier, mm -hmm. but we're also sleeping longer. So we're not getting up that much earlier. But um, that's, you know, like a six, seven, eight year old. Mm -hmm. When we start getting to be adolescents, 12, 13, 14, our rhythm delays. So now instead of getting sleepy, that window of sleepiness from our circadian rhythm occurs later. Mm. And it starts even overshooting what it becomes as an adult. Because it's a rhythm that, um, and so it might be 11, 12, one, mm. and they're on their devices and they're in social media and they're talking to their friends. Mm. So they delay and they really want to go to sleep later and they go to sleep later and they still have to get up early for yeah. school. So they're very sleep deprived. Yeah. So, um, this is such a vital part of being a human being. What is it? A third of our life we are sleeping or, or something like that. Yeah. But I can't help but go back to my personal story and how I was rescued from the Moonies was because I fell asleep at the wheel of a, of a Mooney van. I, and what I came to understand is while we have laws uh, around drunk driving. There are no laws around driving sleepy, but in fact, people may have micro sleep while they're driving and 
like have a crash. And unlike when you're drunk, your body gets loose, you can like really hurt, be harmed even more. Is that correct? And I understand correctly. Yeah. I mean, look, we have, you know, we have regulations as we should for um, amount of alcohol in our system. Um, and it turns out that sleep deprivation, when someone is sleep deprived, there it's, it's some of the deficits we have are similar mm. to when we are drunk. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, you know, I, it, it is a question about how how we should monitor sleepiness mm -hmm. and driving mm -hmm. and safety. And certainly there, you know, those who have narcolepsy, they are, you know, they do, they are regulated in terms of whether they sh can drive, they're tested, um, and, and sometimes they, they cannot drive. I had, a, uh, I had a, a client who had narcolepsy. Explain for my listeners what that condition is. So narcolepsy is a rare sleep disorder, but it is one where the hallmark symptom is daytime sleepiness. So they are uh, sleepy, and, you know, but not sleepy the whole day. They have, it sort of comes and it goes. They're mm. sleepy, they're awake. They're sleepy, they're awake. And they might have micro sleeps or, mm. you know, sleep for a little bit. But as it turns out, they also don't sleep well at night. Mm. So it, what we've come to understand is it's really a um, an instability of the sleep-wake mm. uh, sleep system. Mm. I was going to say, my recollection of my client was that when she laughed hard, she fell asleep. Like, she had to keep herself from laughing hard. And I have no idea if that was like idiosyncratic or a, a feature of narcolepsy. Right. So, like I said, narcolepsy is, the hallmark is sleepiness, but there is another symptom, which is cataplexy. Mm. And what happens with cataplexy, and it doesn't happen to everybody, there's subgroups of narcoleptics, but um, is their muscle tone, which is something that happens in REM sleep. You become paralyzed in REM sleep, well, this is happening while they're awake. Mm. So they actually, they're, they lose muscle tone and it happens with strong emotion and it happens when you laugh. Mm -hmm. And you can collapse, you can, or just some parts of your body actually lose muscle tone. And so people with it avoid strong emotion. Yeah. It's very sad. Um, it happens more with laughing, but it can happen with crying. It can happen with, you know, just surprise, I mean, emotion. Oh, yeah. We are emotional beings, aren't we? Yes. It, it, I mean, what's, what's one of the striking things about sleep disorders is anything that can go wrong does. Mm-hmm. But hopefully as science progresses and we have more and more data, we can figure out what the mechanisms are and personalize and customize approaches that can help people hypothetically. And, and I will say that we know a lot about now the sleep pathways because of um, technological advances in research. We're able to understand the pathways of sleep. We now know orexin the orexin receptors in the hypothalamus that are involved on in the on-off switch of sleep to wake and wake to sleep. Mm -hmm. Because wake has always got to be a priority. Mm. We always have to wake to, you know, run run away from the saber-toothed tiger. Right. 
So that's the challenge we have. But technology has allowed us to treat, if not cure, at this point, treat a lot of these sleep disorders. Mm -hmm. So while I'm explaining all these, I'm realizing that I'm not saying we can do a lot about this as well. Yeah. Because we really can. Yeah. People consult an expert. And I think starting with a two-week sleep log is a really great idea, even maybe before you, you consult with someone like Dr. Brock uh, is a great thing. I really want to just ask you a couple more things and then we'll wrap up. So I have a dear friend, uh, John Atek, ex-Scientologist. He and family members suffer from delayed phase sleep disorder. And he's consulted with the top experts in the UK and has read everything. And he basically just goes, you know, he sleeps, he goes to sleep at 4 a.m. and he wakes up at noon and it works for him. And he's brilliant, but it's just an oddity of his life mm -hmm. and his kids. Some of his kids have it too. Tell us about that. Right. So again, back to circadian rhythms, most of us are going to be in sync with the light and dark cycle um, and can reset in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, but what we understand, there's always a small percentage, again, this distribution and probably there were a reason. There was a reason why we needed people to have delayed sleep phase mm. um, phases because they were the ones that could keep watch at nighttime. Ah, survival. Um, yeah, and so um, so for them, they don't either reset or they just have a delayed phase. And kind of three or four a.m. is the very kind of classic time that they will fall asleep. Mm -hmm. And because it's three or four, they're going to sleep seven to eight hours, and it's going to be 11 to 12 to one. Yep. And um, and you can advance someone to some extent, but um, never to be uh, someone that'll be an 11 to six or seven sleeper. And for some people, it just works for them to sleep on that rhythm. Yeah, he, he uh, has tried it all and would love for there to be a solution because he's married uh, to someone who doesn't have it. But um, he's, he's just, you know, is true to his body and what he needs. And, you know, he's uh, a dear, dear man. So I wanted to just ask in case there's any, any other thoughts about that. So as we wrap up, I'm going to ask your summary wisdom. We need seven to nine hours sleep. Sleep hygiene is really crucial. There are things people should learn about and do. Uh, give us a, a final summary of, of um, about this very vital topic. Sure. Well, um, I think, you know, you captured some of it right there. Um, what I would also add to that is to, um, you know, emotions are very important. We, as we understand, probably a big part of sleep is to form memory, is to regenerate the things we need to for the next day to survive, um, and for the, and and for emo our emotions to be to make us feel safe mm. and happy. Mm. Um, so I also encourage people during the daytime to really try to um, enjoy their day mm. because that a happy day will is more likely to go into a, a better night's sleep. 
Yeah. Um, and of course, a better night's sleep is is also, um, you know, will translate into a better day. So they, they're bi-directional. Mm -hmm. And our mood is important in our sleep, and our sleep is important in our mood. Mm -hmm. um, That's so we great. certainly understand And that. one other thing that you taught me years ago about napping is good, but don't do it after 3 p.m. Like, keep it, like, earlier in the afternoon, half hours, you know, power nap or something is something that's yes. okay. Yes, we are the only animal that doesn't nap and probably you know we could benefit from it or some people can mm -hmm. um but you can't do it late and right you can't do it for you know don't make it hours it should be no more than an hour mm -hmm. yes great but also if you're having problems seek help yes there is help sleep disorder centers that's what they're there for that's what i'm here for that's what you know there are they're all over the world and um, some resources are the um, the American Sleep Medicine Association. Mm -hmm. uh, Behavioral Sleep Medicine is another one. Mm -hmm. uh, the National Sleep Foundation is another one. And a question. Uh, if people are not in New York uh, to see you in person, can they do a telehealth consult with you? I saw you're listed at Psychology Today uh, as, as one of the licensed experts. Is that something that's yep. possibly worthwhile? Absolutely. Um, they they can certainly get in touch with me through my Psychology Today uh, contact information. And you know, if if um, if I can't see them, I certainly can make recommendations um, also for other you know uh, behavioral sleep medicine specialists. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Lauren Brock. Um, Thank you. It's, uh, you know, you've taught me over the decades, so I probably wound up talking more than I had planned to, but I, my, my brain was getting stimulated as you were talking. Uh, all I can say is sleep is vital and we need it for our immune system and uh, learning. And uh, I, all I can say is uh, really make it a priority you'll feel better you'll be smarter you'll remember more you'll be able to concentrate more and stay off your cell phones late at night please before you go to sleep and and enjoy your Amen. rest thank you so much dr <laughs> lauren right, Brock. thank you take care thank you Bye. steve that's it for today's episode of the influence continuum I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast is by Nasser Malik. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website at freedomofmind.com. There you'll find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you grasp the complex web of undue influence. I have also launched a new nine-hour online course for anyone interested in a deep dive into issues related to recovering from undue influence in all forms. 
While this course is designed for clinicians, everyone can benefit. If you're a former member, I congratulate you for your bravery and invite you to use the hashtag IGOTOUT and join our online community at IGOTOUT.org. Remember, love is stronger than mind control. And thanks for listening.